0: Good afternoon. Happy Wednesday, friends. Rob Bregenridge with you. Afternoons on QR Calgary, halfway through the Calgary Stampede. We've got a lot to get to as we kick off the program here this afternoon. Your phone calls, of course, 403-974-8255. We will talk about the announcement from the Bank of Canada today, the interest rate uh, going up again. And the bank has some concern, even amid the progress we're seeing on getting inflation under control. We'll talk much more about that. But I do want to begin this afternoon with the latest on the conversation around the Online News Act, formerly Bill C-18. And we've been talking a lot about it lately because the stakes are high. But the situation we're in at the moment, I think, is concerning. Uh, So today, the story, uh, this from the Globe and Mail, Ottawa's bid to bring tech giants Google and Meta on side through regulations in the Online News Act has failed to persuade Meta. The company says it will press ahead with its plans to block access to Canadian news on Facebook and Instagram. The company's undecided yet whether it will do so as well on Threads, which is their rival to Twitter. In fact, it's not clear, I guess, whether the Online News Act would apply to Threads, although it does apply to the company. Interestingly, not to Twitter. So we're in a situation here that, as I say, I think is concerning. With the loss of Canadian news on big platforms like Facebook and Instagram... And no new revenue coming in, which in part was what the Online News Act was designed to do. So we did learn about the regulations uh, that were rolled out this week where the federal government is prepared to back down or compromise on some of the parts of the Online News Act. So joining us to talk about the situation we're in, some of the changes these regulations might usher in, and what we do if indeed uh, META proceeds down this track. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon Canada's Minister of Heritage, the Honorable Pablo Rodriguez, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Minister, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, like I say, I feel like we're in a concerning situation here, if indeed uh, Meta plans to, uh, or sticks to its plans, to block Canadian news on Facebook and Instagram. What have you heard from the company here, first of all?
1: Well, we we're uh, discussing with, with Google. Uh, we have good conversations with them. We met with them on Friday. Uh, we're uh, trying to set up a meeting this week. It should happen. Um, but on Meta, to the, the opposite road, uh, They're more of a bully approach uh, um, so we didn't hear from them, but uh, I always tell them, if you want to come at the table, we're, we're going to discuss.
0: Right. And apparently they don't. I mean, you know, despite the carrot and the stick here, the, the changes to it, through these regulations, the, the uh, withdrawal of federal government advertising on Facebook and Instagram, the company's position hasn't changed. So what's the plan B here?
1: Well, it hasn't changed for now. For What we're doing now is, is we keep discussing with Google, which which is 70% of uh, our revenues. Um, and again, the are productive um, discussions. Now, Google Meta has to, to explain why they want to do this and are they going to do this everywhere around the world because the world is watching Canada, as you know. So there's other countries like New Zealand, Brazil, are coming with the same bill. California is doing the same. The United States, Washington's looking at it with support for both sides of the House, the Democratic and Republicans. So are they going to pull out news everywhere across the world? I'm not sure they want to do that. But again, then that's a decision.
0: Well, I mean, ultimately, it is. Which, again, I mean, I think, a this this was something that was warned not just by the company but by other experts. You know, as the bill was coming along, that this could be a possible outcome here. I don't know if the government considered that. Um, and if they don't, oh, we, we could, where does that where does that leave us then?
1: We, we consider everything, um, and and but I would ask, what, what's the alternative, right? Like you have newsrooms like closing across the country, like over 500 newsrooms, uh, around 500 newsroom closed in the last 15 years, right? In, in cities, in regions, big, small, English, French, everything. That's bad for our democracy. It, it hurts our democracy. Um, and so, it, take out the bill. It, let's do nothing, and this is a trend. It's going to keep on going that direction. That's not a solution. So we need the big tech, the tech giants to come and sit at the table to discuss and pay their fair share without asking for more or less just what's fair. Because what you guys do, what you're doing now, Rob, now at this moment has value. The people in the newsroom, what they do has value. The people in that building, what they do has value. And they have to recognize that, that it has value. They also have to recognize that even if they're big, they're powerful, and they have big lawyers, they're not going to come to Canada and tell us a sovereign nation with a government elected by its people what to do. Because we're not going to accept that.
0: Well, okay. And again, again, I get the point here, but it it doesn't change the reality. I mean, the outcome is what matters here. I mean, as much as the previous status quo was problematic for the news industry in Canada, what we have now is is worse. We have uh, the potential loss of Canadian news on two important platforms. We have the loss of agreements between organizations and Meta. Whatever was wrong with the status quo before, what we have now seems worse.
1: No, we don't have, there's nothing that there is now. What you're saying now is we have six months to, to negotiate with, with them, right? The bill was adopted, got royal assent on June 22nd. Uh, it enters into force on, on six months after, December 22nd. So nothing at this moment gives any obligation to those platforms. Nothing. But it gives us time, though, to sit down and agree on stuff. So those companies want clarity, which is normal. They're businesses. I've been in the private sector. They want clarity. We told them wait, wait, wait for the regulations, it's going to provide parity, and it's exactly what we're doing through the regulations we presented this week.
0: Now, Meta has has not said whether it intends to pull Canadian news off threads, and as we've seen since it launched, a lot of Canadians are signing up for threads. Do you believe that that this would fall under the Online News Act?
1: It could be captured. Uh, we don't know yet, Depend on, on the final regulations. Um, we're, we're working on that, but again, that's why I'm saying to Meta, come and, come and, and discuss with us.
0: And of course, Meta is meant to be a rival to Twitter. And, and I think Canadians are confused. Well, why are we focusing on, on Meta and Google? Why isn't Twitter a part of this? Why isn't Microsoft a part of this? Why isn't Apple a part of this?
1: We're, we're, we're concentrating our efforts on, on platforms that have a dominating position in Canada. Those two companies that just just named, Meta and Google, they get 80% of all revenues in the country. 80%. So last year... Out of 13 billion dollars in, in ad revenues, 10 of those 13 billions went to those two companies: Google, Facebook, 80 percent. So of the,
0: the regulations uh, that well, Heritage Canada released the, the Next Step document this week, so as you say, there's still some time to sort all of this out. Mm-hmm. But how much has the government's position changed here?
1: It hasn't. I mean, we're, we're clarifying the rules. Uh, we keep discussing with them. We, we published them uh, this week, first because it's a normal process, right? It's been it's been planned since day one. It, it's section 84 of the bill. I've been working uh, with this bill for over a year now, and it always always there. It was there because it's how we work in our country, in Canada. Uh, you have to come up with regulations after the bill is adopted. So we could not bring those that level of precision before the bill was adopted a couple of weeks ago, now it's there. Uh, and we've been working on those regulations that we published this week. Why? Because it has to be transparent. It's, in, it, it's the way we do it in our country. And also because we want to hear from Meta, from Google, uh, from you guys, if you want to intervene in this or, or any Canadian. And then once we get that, we go back to the drawing table and we, we prepare the final regulations that uh, come into force uh, six months after, after June 22nd.
0: Right. But again, the bill passed. I mean, you know, there was an opportunity uh, through the consultation before to do all of this, that the bill was pretty clear that there would be Uncapped liability that would be privately negotiated payments, uh, but now it appears as though on the regulation side we're going in a slightly di- different direction here, where there would be caps, there would be legislated minimums and maximums. That feels like well, a departure.
1: No, the, the, no, no. The, the, when the regulations were, were there, and we were we were working on these regulations that you saw this week for a very long time. The thing is, we could not publish it before the bill was 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 uh, had great on its end. We. The the model is exactly what we've said said since uh, day one. We simply, it's like putting a table. Think about it. It's like putting a table in in a room and having the tech giants sit on one side, news organization on the other, and and having them come to an agreement. And if they don't, then they go to final arbitration. For me, as a minister, that was key because I want nothing to do with this. I don't want to be the minister that says where the money goes. It has to be based on those negotiations, and that's it.
0: I think one of the concerns the companies raised prior to the bill passing was that there was uncertainty as to what this would cost them. There seemed to be no upper limits on what this would cost them. Was there an opportunity before the bill passed to provide that certainty? Why are we now talking about a cap?
1: Because it's the type of, it's the type of things you put into regulations. Um, because things change with time. So the regulations will, bring, will give you a range of investments for the platforms. It's also going to uh, uh, be more precise on the type of organizations that the, the platform has to make deals with. Uh, so it's normal process. Again, the bill gives you the big framework, and those details after that come uh, in, uh, through regulations. That's exactly what we're doing.
0: If indeed there there are lost links uh, on on uh, Facebook and Instagram, if uh, Canadian news is is removed from those platforms, do we have any idea of what kind of a cost that could represent to Canadian media organizations? And would the federal government step in to compensate them for those losses?
1: Well, we we strongly believe. Uh of the of the role of this bill so we're working on on with a positive approach uh, discussing with google and hoping meta joins to the table there are already programs in place um there's a tax credit for newsrooms uh, again that's arm's length so there's a set of criterias uh, that defines who can uh, you know apply for that that tax credits about 600 million dollars a year there's another program for um media in in remote you know uh, regions because people have the right to have access to local news that they can trust. So those two programs are uh, there in place, and we think that c 18 will be a, an important problem too.
0: But, but we don't know what those losses, what, what kind of number that might represent
1: potentially. Well, it depends who, who makes a deal, who doesn't make a deal, and what type of deal they make. Uh, that is, is negotiated around the table.
0: Well, I mean, by, by the loss of, of links on Facebook and Instagram, what kind of impact Pardon. that could have?
1: It, it's, but it's, it's never about links, by the way. This bill has nothing to do with the clicks. It has nothing to do with the, the, the clicks. Sorry. It, it has everything to do with the negotiations at the end of the table between the tech giants and, and the media.
0: I, I mean, the consequences of Meta following through, that, that would represent a loss, wouldn't it, to, to Canadian media organizations to not have <laughs> that's why, access to this
1: this. That's why they're using this uh, uh, as a threat that's what but there's other ways you know we took this reflex of, of going through social media but but before that I mean you could access directly I mean I could go to your website directly uh, on my browser uh, you can go to through different other to other organizations. you can download an app I mean there's different ways um, to access local news but what's what's at the heart of all this this is our democracy if we're losing that free, independent and uh, nonpartisan press we have a huge problem and this problem is happening everywhere in the world, in the States, in Europe, in South America, in Asia, and that's why those those countries are, are are moving in the same direction, and they're looking at you know what we're doing as Canadians.
0: You announced last week that the federal government was going to be pausing its its advertising on these mm-hmm. platforms, uh, but but that advertising has been going on for years. I mean, it represents tens of millions of dollars. Uh, that have been profit to these companies, advertising that that previously would have gone to media organizations in Canada. Why, why didn't the government take this approach a long time ago? That would have been very beneficial to the Canadian media. Well,
1: city. it shows you it, it shows you the strength and the dominance of those of those platforms, right? So now we, we took our news out of there last Wednesday. Then the Quebec government followed. The, uh, today it's the British Columbia government. I think Ottawa is following this 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 afternoon uh, you have big cities like montreal and others also that that took that direction and we plan um to to reinvest that money uh in in campaigns and and we have to see where it's going to go but uh of course we're looking at uh traditional media definitely
0: but there's, there's no commitment at this point that that media or the media outlets in canada are going to receive any of those advertising dollars
1: we're working we're working on that the first decision was to pull out the news which was which i did I mean, I announced it on behalf of the government last Wednesday, and now we're working on where the money will go.
0: Okay, so what are the next steps here? We we mentioned, uh, you know, the regulations that were laid out uh, by your department this week. Uh, you, you mentioned that there's still willingness uh, on Google's part anyway to negotiate. So where does this go from here?
1: Well, uh, for now, we we keep discussing. Last week, um, we, we met with Google on Friday. Uh, uh, we're working on a meeting this week. Uh, and I think it's positive. I mean, there's, there's, you know, some quite often there's tough discussions, but it's normal. And no, nothing is easy. They want clarifications. And I think they realize that they're getting some of that clarification to through, um, through, um, through regulation. And we've said it since day one. Guys, uh, some of the clarifications you need, we understand, and you're right. You, you, you should get that, but you get it through the regulation. And as for Meta, well, again, uh, I'm there. If they, they have my cell number, if you want to meet and chat, uh, uh, I'm available.
0: Well, we'll see where it all goes from here, Minister. Do appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. Thank
1: you very much. Thank you. Bye bye.
0: All the best, sir. There you go. That's uh, Pablo Rodriguez, Canada's uh, Minister of Heritage, overseeing uh, the follow through now on the Online News Act, which, of course, did pass Parliament. Regulations have not yet come into force. So both Google and Meta uh, have said no thanks. So Meta seems, I think, a lot more entrenched in its position. Google may be a willingness still at this point to negotiate, but we'll see how that goes.
2: We are trying to balance the risks of under and over tightening monetary policy. If we don't do enough now, we'll likely have to do even more later. But if we do too much, we risk making economic conditions unnecessarily painful for everybody.
0: Well, that's Bank of Canada, Governor Tiff Macklin, talking about the challenge they face in knowing when the job is done and making sure you don't overshoot the mark or undershoot the mark. And and both have their downsides, to be sure. Uh, So the Bank of Canada believes some further tightening of monetary policy is necessary. As much as we've seen progress on inflation down from a peak of 8.1 percent to 3.4 percent with the last numbers we saw, concerned that that progress might be stalling or the march to 2% might be stalling. So they believe they need to do just a little bit more. But again, it's hard to know exactly how this is all going to play out. Uh, so that's part of the concern here, I guess, is what if the bank has done too much? What if they still need to do more? And again, which is worse? I, I think you know, it's, it's better to be able to, to pull back on interest rates if you believe you've gone too far. Uh, than a situation where you just prolong the fight against inflation and you need to keep interest rates higher for longer. So joining us to talk about the situation the bank finds itself in, the decision they made today, where we go from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, William Robson, CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute and chair of the Institute's Monetary Policy Council. Bill, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Uh, Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: I mean, nothing really surprising today, right? It's been pretty clear for for some time now. This is where the bank was going. So first of all, your reaction to to the announcement today?
2: As you say, yeah, not a surprise. And our Monetary Policy Council had called for the bank to do this. Um, Having said that, uh, and and you touched on this in your opening remarks, uh, it would have raised some eyebrows if they hadn't moved. But I don't think there would have been a lot of people saying it was a, a terrible mistake the reaction uh, or, or or this move up to five uh, really reflects the fact that the economy has continued to do uh better than what people were expecting and i'm in that camp i i expected it to be much softer by now uh what's 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 kind of good news though it's a remarkable thing that inflation has come down uh, pretty much the way they had been forecasting that it would so the reason that they've gone up a quarter point this time is not because inflation wasn't coming down the way they thought it uh, uh, was going to. It's just that with the economy, you know, households are continuing to spend a lot. Uh, they they mention also that governments are spending uh, global growth, uh, you know, it's almost a mixed bag when you look around the world, but on balance, it's uh, looking a little better, certainly in, in the United States. Um, and then one other thing I'll just quickly mention uh, they don't emphasize this so much in their comments today, but it, it's it's sure there in the numbers. Uh, business investment is very weak, and the trouble with that is that um, it means that the uh, economy's capacity to produce isn't growing all that rapidly. So you put all that together with demand running ahead of what they expected that it would uh, and productive capacity not growing As quickly as we would all like to see it grow, Uh, what that added up to in the bank's mind was not so much that inflation hasn't come down, but that it might not continue coming down. So they opted for that extra quarter point.
0: Right, because I understand it, you know, the the measure they use, the core inflation, which is one of the ways they they look at uh, the inflationary picture, we've seen a bit of stalling in the core inflation. So I think that's concerned them a bit, and you alluded to it. I mean, the GDP numbers have been surprisingly strong, job creation numbers surprisingly strong. Were those the two big factors
2: for them? Yeah, I think so. The core inflation numbers are, there's a lot of people who follow them. The reason a lot of people follow them, though, is because the bank does. Uh, You know, I've tended always to think, well, you know, it's all the prices out there that matter. Um, so uh, on, on that one, I'd say, yes, it's a concern in their minds um, how how strong the evidence is that it really makes a difference. I don't know. I mean, they tend to be slightly lagging indicators. Um, but when it comes to the strength of the economy, uh, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, uh, there are some surprises there. And one of the things, uh, you know, mortgage rates are, are on a lot of people's minds. Uh, and what's interesting is, sure, we saw the housing sector kind of take a hit when interest rates uh, first started to go up. Uh, we saw uh, sales off. We saw starts uh, declining. Um, but there's been it, it sort of hit bottom and 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 snapped back a little. And I think that's one of the things that made uh, the Bank of Canada and others, other other forecasters, go, "Oh, well, maybe maybe there does need to be uh, a, a little more downward pressure, though there." So. Yeah, those those two things uh, that – that, uh, and also, sorry, just let me uh, add, add one more thing since you mentioned the core inflation numbers. Uh, the bank and lots of other people look at what's happening on wages, uh, and wages are, are growing uh, quite strongly. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in, in the sense that wages often chase inflation. Uh, We've certainly seen that when we had big cycles in inflation in the past. It's not like wages cause inflation uh, on their own. People are trying to make up for lost purchasing power. But I go back to what I said about the economy's productive capacity not rising very quickly. Uh, If labour costs are going up, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, real, you know, uh, what people are producing... Uh, isn't rising as quickly then that's one of the things that makes people go oh gee that maybe maybe inflation is going to get stuck because we got all that cost pressure without the productivity increases so Yeah, you you can certainly make a case. And as I said, our monetary policy council did actually uh, 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 call for the bank to do this. Um, I think we're probably near. I would have said the same thing six months ago. That's that's, that's the warning label on that one. Uh, But I'll I'll stick my neck out again and, and, uh, and hope not to be wrong this time. I think we are at the peak.
0: Well, yeah, and I think that's the expectation. We're at 3.4%. I guess I think that was were the main numbers. We're just waiting for the June numbers. I think the expectation is we'll be right around 3%. So if things keep trending in that direction, that that's encouraging.
2: Yeah, it, it is encouraging. And the other thing that, I mean, in, in many respects, uh, if, you, if you took a step back and, and you uh, uh, compared what's happening now to what happened when we had previous run-ups in inflation back in the 70s and 80s, um, This is actually an amazing situation to be in where inflation has come down so sharply, but the economy has continued to grow. I mean, what's not to like about that? You know, if, if the if the alternative was to have inflation come down only when we'd had a recession, then everybody would pick the uh, uh, pick the situation that we're in now. Um, if you're making a case for this really being the peak and maybe uh, arguing that the bank shouldn't have even uh, raised rates this morning, uh, the argument that I think you would make is that there's a lot of pressure already built in. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we've seen inflation come down. They've been... Uh, they've subjected us to this big interest rate increase. And even though the housing market had this little bit of a rebound, if we if we just look at what's happening with uh, uh, mortgages that are coming up for renewal and the, and the increasing number of people who might've taken out a mortgage when interest rates were really low during the pandemic, um, then you could say, yeah, there's quite a bit of pressure that's kind of built in uh, already. Um, So if if, if you take that view, maybe the bank shouldn't have gone uh, higher uh, this morning. Uh, Maybe, okay, it's an insurance thing. But uh, on the whole, the downward uh, trend in inflation is still there. Uh, The economy is likely to soften a little further. So that's why I say I I think this time we really are at the peak. I'd be very surprised to see rates uh, go up, uh, you know, maybe a quarter point from here, but certainly not, like, you know, to 550 or 6 or anything.
0: Well, and you alluded to one kind of wrinkle in all of this, because, you know, higher mortgage payments do start to show up in the inflation numbers. And, you know, I mean, we'd be under 2 percent. I mean, if you you took out the higher mortgage payments. So it, it, it does start to have an impact. And I know the Bank of Canada realizes that. So that's something they consider. That's something they factor in. But, you know, those higher mortgage payments do start to get factored in. They do start to get calculated in here
2: they they do figuring out how to um, measure those things in the inflation rate is very hard and different countries that are you know have full of smart statisticians uh, do it differently because it really is hard to know like you want to have new house prices in there but you know most people don't buy a new house every month so how much weight should that have in in the consumer price index uh, people are seeing mortgages reset but uh you know about a third of Canadians have mortgages and about a third of mortgage holders have seen some action so far so it's it's very much of a different picture depending on what part of the uh, population you're looking at and with the canadian c p i they try to uh, balance all these things out. What's, what really makes a difference month to month is food and energy prices. Uh, they matter a lot in the consumer price index because they, they're, they're, they're very important in what people buy uh, month to month, and they also are very important in what people kind of see. When people are thinking about what prices are likely to do over the next year or two years when people answer surveys, including from the Bank of Canada, about what they're expecting. The pr- what's happened to gasoline prices, what's happened to food prices lately, really it's front and center in their minds, and uh, uh, if, if we continue to see a, a little bit of help from oil prices, uh, if if uh, if the improvements in supply chains and, and other things break our way with regard to food prices, um, then then you can catch a bit of a break there, and then I think everybody relaxes.
0: Well, should we panic about this port strike? I mean, when you talk about food and retail yeah. and energy,
2: it it sure doesn't help. Um, one of the things that again if you, if you look back at experience uh, when we had high inflation um uh, many years ago uh strikes and inflation are correlated mm-hmm. uh when when inflation is high you see more strikes and i think that's pretty straightforwardly and and sort of we touched on this earlier in the conversation uh you know when when workers find their purchasing power is getting eroded uh they uh they don't like it quite naturally and and they try to make up for it um, and um, uh, what seems like a perfectly reasonable labour contract when you signed it, say, two years ago, can start to look kind of unreasonable. And so you do see strikes uh, when inflation is high, and at margin, they don't help. Uh, yeah, because you, you do get uh, uh, the supply chains get disrupted, and it's um, uh, uh, unhelpful for everything that comes into the country. Uh, if if you were looking, this isn't a bright side at all. It's a, it's a, it's just a negative. But um, it it also hurts the economy when it comes to our exports not being able to get out. So in that sense, it's a bit of a, a disinflationary thing. But I I guess my main thought there is, you know, strikes follow inflation. They don't lead it. And if we get inflation back down again, and the bank is still expecting us to get down very, very close to 2% uh, in a year's time and and, going into 2025, if that happens, uh, I I don't think we're going to be seeing a whole lot more strikes because we'll be back in that situation where the purchasing power, people's money really isn't changing all that much. And when it's not changing all that much, then you don't have that, uh, uh, you know, that that exacerbating factor in labour management relations.
0: Well, much more at How dot org. Uh, Bill, I always appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much. Make some time for us here this afternoon.
2: Well, very good. And if we're talking again in the future, and and the Bank of Canada has gone higher, be gentle with me. I'm sure we'll have a <laughs> promise. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, maybe maybe it'll be down, and inflation will be down, and it'll be a cheerful story.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. All right, thanks again, Bill. All the best.
2: A pleasure. Bye. Take care,
0: uh, William Robson, uh, CEO at the CD Howe Institute. Uh, he's chair of their Monetary Policy Council. So, uh, they were of the uh, opinion that. The bank probably needed to go to 5%, and I don't think anyone was surprised that they did, but not everybody's going to agree with that.
2: We have a whole bunch of abandoned wells that are sitting on people's private property and public lands that are causing problems. We can't do it all today, but we can do it if we start off with a good program, where polluters pay, where the industry itself, is responsible for this, and we work with the federal government and other levels of government.
0: Okay, so that's Brian Jean, who is, uh, of course, re-elected as an MLA, uh, now has the responsibility of being Alberta's energy minister. He's received his mandate letter from the premier. Uh, She wants him to focus on the issue of cleaning up old oil wells. Part of the mandate letter includes the idea of looking for incentives for oil companies to clean up wells. But she also wants the plan to respect the polluter pay principle. So there is that question, well, how can it be both? If we're incentivizing oil companies to clean up old wells, that seems to fly in the face of the polluter pay principle. This goes back to the whole controversy around the so-called R-Star proposal, which by design was going to incentivize companies to clean up old wells, the uh, to of potentially billions of dollars of taxpayer money. Now there are, there's a difference here between you know, an abandoned well and an orphan well, right? and so it depends on what kind of a, a legal situation we're talking about, because there is the orphan well Association, and the companies pay into that. If there's a well to be cleaned up and the company that created the mess is gone no longer exists, it's, it's officially orphaned, then well, they'll take that responsibility. Uh, but if there's an existing company that has a liability, the onus is on them to clean it up at their expense. That's the polluter pay principle. So how do we incentivize this while at the same time respecting that principle? And I guess further to all of this, how big is the problem? What kind of a timeline are we on here when it comes to addressing it? Well, these are issues that our next guest has been uh, really uh, an in-depth exploration of all of this. Uh, Part two of his work you can find at energy.media, that's E-N-E-R-G-I, energy.media.media on the scope of this problem and what kind of solutions we actually need. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Markham Hislop. He's an energy journalist and publisher at Energy Media. Markham, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Well, thank you, Rob. Glad to uh, glad to be here.
0: Let's talk about the mandate letter for the energy minister. First of all, I, I suppose it's a positive that this has been identified as a priority, but seemingly conflicting instructions here. What do you make of that?
3: Well, this is a really difficult problem, and that little clip that you that you used of uh, Brian Jean, the the energy minister, talking about. It, I mean, everybody acknowledges now, and this is, you know, not everybody has acknowledged this over the years. There's been a fair amount of you know efforts uh, expended to kind of downplay the seriousness of this. But let me go through the numbers a little bit, maybe that'll help. Mm-hmm. So you talked about the orphan well association and uh, uh, there's the difference between an orphan well and an abandoned well. So the difference is that an orphan well has no owner. It has no parent. Right. And so the company has gone bankrupt. In that case, it gets transferred. The Alberta Energy Regulator transfers it over to the Orphan Well Association's inventory. It's officially an orphan. There's about 7,000, I think, uh, now that are being, uh, being uh, uh, reclaimed. The problem is not that one. There are other categories of wells that are really the problem. So the first big one is called uh, suspended and inactive, and there 's almost eighty three thousand of these and these are wells that have been properly suspended according to aER regulations but they 've been sitting there for sometimes years, sometimes decades and While there may be a licensee attached to that well, the, the licensee either as you know maybe it just exists on paper anymore, maybe the the operator is is gone off and you know not is not doing anything with the well anymore. Sometimes they're big companies, and but but those big companies don't want to put capital into reclaiming their old liabilities. So there's 83,000 of those. Then there's another category called uh, abandoned, but site not reclaimed. So what that means is the well itself has been sealed and plugged, Mm -hmm. but the area around it, the well site, uh, has not been reclaimed as it's supposed to under law. And the reason for that is that the, the industry prioritizes the cheap, easy-to-clean-up uh, wells. So if you've got a, a dry hole that's never produced hydrocarbons, that's the first and easiest one. The next one is a gas well because there's no leakage, you know, there's no contamination of the soil. But oil wells, uh, which do tend to, uh, can leak, uh, and, and some of the sites are quite contaminated, they don't do those because they, they cost uh, a lot of money. And so there's like 91,000 of those where the reclamation work has to be done. But we're not done yet. Now there's 155,000 active wells. So these are wells that are actually producing oil and gas. But 61% of them, which is 95,000, are called marginal producers. And that is less they make they're making less than 10 barrels a day of oil equivalent. And those are, you know, they're getting to the end of their economic life, and they're probably, you know, years away uh, from being put into one, you know, being suspended or taken out of, out of service. And you add all of those up, you know, and it's, I don't know, 270,000, 280,000 wells. Which is uh, that are going to require some form of reclamation, and and uh, in the next uh, you know two five ten years whatever, and and then you add on pipelines four hundred and forty thousand kilometers of pipelines that are going to have to eventually be reclaimed and facilities and other infrastructure. The total for for unfunded liabilities in this province, Rob, on the conventional side alone, is between a hundred billion and hundred and thirty billion dollars. That's how big this problem
0: is. Wow. That's considerable, to be sure. Here's a question. I mean, the Alberta Energy Regulator oversees, you know, I I guess these classifications, right? It's the Alberta Energy Regulator that decides, you know, whether uh, uh, something is an orphan well, for example?
2: Yes,
3: that's exactly right. They make the decision.
0: So couldn't they... maybe lower the threshold would it be easier to deal with all of these because we have the orphan well association if we took a lot of these inactive wells that they're for all intents and purposes are orphan wells and move forward in cleaning them up
3: the problem is the is cost uh the industry let me go let me go back to the the beginning sort of in the you know early 50s when the alberta oil and gas industry was really starting to to ramp up And regulators were looking at this, and they had four priorities. First one, and I should say the Alberta government uh, had this priority. So the first one is expansion of the industry and the profitability of the company. That was number one. And I should say that other jurisdictions around North America, like Texas, Oklahoma, shared the same priorities. So it's not like Alberta was, you know, different in that respect. Mm -hmm. So first of all, grow the industry. Secondly, attract capital, good for business. Third, create jobs, keep, keep election, uh, voters happy, and four, generate revenue for the government so that it can provide you know, all sorts of services to the public. Environmental liabilities were way down the list. So what they did was they said, okay, um, we know this is going to be a problem. We'll take a little tiny bit of security against the reclamation costs at the beginning. And that didn't work very well because it was just a very small amount. And again, other jurisdictions have done made the same mistake, so if you don't take a reclamation like a bond, a surety bond, or some sort of security at the beginning, then the question becomes where do you where do you require where do you you know uh, uh, force the industry to pay for the reclamation of that of that well and so the the assumption was uh, and and we and i've got some records you know historical records from uh the AAR you know regulators were saying no we we think the industry is going to do this we we kind of trust them you know we're to do the right thing and by 1995 this is a letter in which they said okay we made a big mistake that clearly is not going to happen at that point there were like 25,000 uh uh suspended wells which were basically de facto uh orphans and they said okay we're not we're going to stop taking security and at this point forward we're going to take we're going to ask industry uh, to fund an abandonment fund. And that's essentially been the strategy ever since, is that we're going, and that's essentially uh, how the orphan well is founded, funded, is out of the, the orphan fund and a levy on all the, the industry. The whole, every company in the industry pays into the levy. It's like the collective responsibility. Now, where that came from, and this is really key to the, key to the story here. In the early 90s, the government was trying to you know was trying to figure out what it was going to do and it came back to them and they said here's a list of seven uh, uh, groups of you know that would be responsible for reclaiming this well in descending order so it started with the owner of the well and then it went right about third or fourth it was like previous owners of the well and if you know you know maybe you've probably heard about liability dumping where the big companies will drill a well, and then when it gets depleted, they sell it to a little company, and then the little company sells it to a smaller company, and eventually the, you know, a smaller company goes bankrupt and, and fails. And the big company said, whoa, 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 you're going to make us responsible for a well that is now like three or four owners away from us? Right. They said, no, we're, we're not going to support that. He said, our counterproposal is this fund. We will agree that we will collectively, as an industry, we'll fund all of these failures, these suspended wells and so on, uh, these orphans. And, th- and that's been basically the working uh, arrangement for the last 30 years. But back that was fine when it was back when it was $3 million or $5 million. Now, last year's levy was $135 million, and industry was really squawking. If you ask them to pay billions of dollars a year, imagine the kind of pushback you get from industry. But the landowner advocates, the ones, the farmers you referred to who have wells on their property, the orphan wells, they say, look, you made the deal. You made the agreement and you should stick by it now. You don't get to Welsh on your deal just because now it's a lot of money. That's, you've got to stick to the bargain.
0: Right. So, I mean, as you mentioned, we're, we're into the realm now of billions of dollars. And if industry isn't going to pay it or they're going to delay uh, paying it, I mean, that's where maybe the taxpayers are going to get dragged into this. So the idea of incentivizing well cleanup, I don't know what that means, but it certainly sounds like uh, taxpayer dollars at stake here.
3: Well, that's what R-Star is all about. So Danielle Smith was promoting this uh, after she left QR 77 and became a, an oil and gas lobbyist for the uh, Alberta Enterprise Group she proposed it to the uh, government you, you know of Jason Kenney and and Sonia Savage the energy minister said well no we can't do that because it violates the polluter pay uh, principle the government the, the public the, the Alberta public should never be asked to pay a cent to clean up these wells this is industry's responsibility 100% so the, the number $20 billion has been bandied about, and that is actually only the value of the credits, because these are our credits against against drilling. The actual value, that or the amount of money that would come out of the public uh, coffers would be $6 billion. Now, Smith talked about maybe double credits, so it might be a maximum of $12 billion. But here's the thing, Rob. The the danger here, according to Professor Martin Olashinsky, who's a law professor at the University of Calgary, he says it's not... Six billion dollars is not that much money in the big scheme of things. It's the moral hazard. And what that means is once you pay for industry's debts, basically, their liabilities, then you'll be asked to pay again and again and again. It's the slippery slope argument. And that's the that's the, the difficulty of R Star is is that it sets the precedent for the taxpayers of Alberta basically bailing out the oil and gas industry and given the magnitude like how big this problem is that and then we haven't even talked about the oil sands you know which is another 130 billion so you can see that they i talk about in in the in the two pieces i've written about a doomsday scenario where alberta could see both a environmental catastrophe with all of these you know uh unreclaimed oil and get dirty oil and gas assets around the province, but also a financial catastrophe to get the two of them together. So this is a very, very serious industry. This is like decades in the making, and the bill is finally coming home to be paid by Alberta, one way or the other.
0: Well, and is it all coming to a head soon? Like, what kind of a timeline are we on here?
3: Well, this is, uh, this is really the, the crux of the debate, because if you're the industry... Um, you know, generally the industry thinks that the energy transition is going to be slow. So there are lots of folks, you can find lots of folks in the industry who say, no, you know, oil demand is going to be rising to about 130, 135 million barrels a day to 2040, 2050. We have lots of time. We have lots of time. But there are others, and I'm actually in this camp, who, who think that, uh, the International Energy Agency is, has got it right. And peak oil, global peak oil demand will occur in 2030. Then you'll start to see decline in the early 2030s. That will then make oil prices very volatile and probably drive them down. And at that point in the game, where's the money to reclaim oil and gas liabilities? So if there's a best-case scenario and a worst-case scenario, and as I say in my piece, you know, Alberta always plans for the best and ignores the worst instead of doing what our mothers told us to do, which was, you know, uh, hope for the best and plan for the worst.
0: Leave it on that note, Markham, uh, much more is mentioned, Energy.media. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, That's uh, energy journalist Markham Hislop, who is a publisher at Energy Media, E-N-E-R-G-I, energy.media so part two of his investigation into what he calls alberta's orphan well crisis is up now and yeah you know this is all coming to a head one way or another so how is this going to be dealt with all right so about 66 million years ago a pretty big asteroid uh, slammed into uh, this planet specifically in the yucatan peninsula And that had pretty devastating environmental ramifications right across the planet. Now, humans weren't affected because we weren't around. uh, But the dinosaurs definitely were. This was the age of the dinosaurs. It was their planet. And that really kicked off what was essentially then their extinction. But there's the question, though, that still lingers. I mean, if it hadn't been for the asteroid, would dinosaurs continue to have dominated the planet? In other words, were they already in decline? before that asteroid arrived. Now, a couple of years ago, our next guest was involved in an international study that suggested the answer to that question was yes. Dinosaurs likely were in decline long before that asteroid arrived. What's interesting as well is that we can find now uh, much of the the proof for that right here in Alberta, specifically uh, a tour along the Red Deer River will bring you to to many of these these answers and some really compelling evidence for this theory. Joining us to talk more about this uh, issue, some of these big questions, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon the paleontologist uh, who was involved in that big study from a couple of years ago and has been uh, working on this and uh, other related issues. Uh, Philip Curry is a paleontologist at the University of Alberta. Professor Curry, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Yeah, great to be here
0: why is this important to know? I mean, either way, the the asteroid had a pretty big impact, whether dinosaurs were were doing well or not. But why does it matter? Why do we need to to better understand this?
4: Well, I think it uh, does matter in the sense that, um, you know, we're always uh, concerned about our own chances of survival. And uh, we're doing some pretty devastating things to the uh, planet ourselves. And uh, I think that if we look at what happened to dinosaurs, there's more than just a lesson that it was an accidental death caused by an asteroid. There was something else going on there. And um, maybe that uh, is a good warning for us.
0: Yes, perhaps. So what was that something else then? What was happening uh, prior to this asteroid smashing into Earth 66 million years ago?
4: Well, the fun thing is that the Red Deer River is just, uh, I guess you could kind of think of it as a river of time. As you go downstream from, uh, say, Red Deer, you're essentially going down in time. And as you go back in time, uh, we're seeing profound changes in, in the dinosaur faunas. So if we start at the uh, uh, extinction level where they disappeared 65 million years ago, roughly, uh, those beds seem to suggest that we only had about 20 species of dinosaurs. But if you go back to the Drumhillary area and you look at uh, how many dinosaurs were there, we're probably dealing with uh, 30, 35 species of dinosaurs. So we can see that um, roughly 5 million years before they uh, went extinct, Uh, there was already um, a reduction in the numbers of dinosaurs that was pretty significant. Uh, But you take it back a little bit further and you get down to Dinosaur Provincial Park, and uh, there we have a a more ancient ecosystem which has more than 50 species of dinosaurs, so more than double the number of species that there is at the end of the uh, Cretaceous. So uh, fundamentally we go from 50 species in Dinosaur Park, and if we go upstream, we get closer to the boundary, to the Drumheller area, and what we find is uh, about 25 species, about half of what we had. And then you get uh, to the boundary itself, and um, uh, certainly in Alberta, we only have about a dozen species, but if you start counting in all of the other beds that are equivalent in age in Western North America, it's still only about 20 species. Um, so there's something very significant going on in that last uh, five to ten million years of dinosaurian history in this part of the world.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So this this path of the Red Gear River kind of tells that story then of those that ten million year period. Uh,
4: correct, and uh, um, you know it's it's a very complex uh, problem, obviously, and you have. Uh, problems with uh, some formations or some rock formations producing more specimens than others and uh, having had a lot more work done on them by scientists because they do produce more. But um, when you sort all those things out and you start looking at it statistically, then you see that really there is a decline uh, that's happening over those last few million years of dinosaurian history. And it suggests something else was going on.
0: Right. What might that something else have been?
4: Well, personally, I believe that it's got a lot to do with the fact that the inland seas were withdrawing from the middle of North America, and that uh, uh, for much of the age of dinosaurs, basically, the Gulf of Mexico extended all the way up into the Arctic Ocean. And uh, we know that the Gulf of Mexico today has a profound influence on, say, the climates of, of northern Europe. And uh, it would have had the same kind of effect in North America um, if, in fact, it had uh, um, the same kind of warming effect that it has today. And fundamentally, we know that in late Cretaceous times, uh, there were no ice caps. And this allowed dinosaurs to move into the Arctic regions during at least the summer months, if not all year and uh um, it's one of the reasons that I think they were so diverse in this part of the world, but uh as the uh, end of the Cretaceous was approached, fundamentally the Gulf of Mexico got separated from the Arctic, and uh then the um the inland Sea basically withdrew from the core of North America, and as it withdrew, we got the um climate changing so that we had progressively more continental climates. and That means that uh, the winters were warmer, or sorry, colder, and the summers were warmer, and the days were hotter, and the nights were colder. And uh, this invariably we know today has a huge effect on how much diversity there is of both plants and animals. And um, I feel that uh, at the end of the Cretaceous, what was going on was that um, as the inland seas got cut off, uh, you stopped getting this moderating effect on the Arctic uh, areas, and you basically had a lot more uh, or much tougher environments that dinosaurs had to deal with. And what this had uh, an effect on was reducing the diversity of dinosaurs. So as we approach the end of the Cretaceous, we see that uh, the dinosaurs are still very, very common. I mean, uh, I think in terms of numbers of individuals, you didn't get any fewer dinosaurs, but you were getting fewer species of dinosaurs, so the diversity was dropping off. And uh, this, uh, no doubt, set them up for... um, a major catastrophe because the fewer animals there are around and the more specialized they are and we know that uh, you know just about every family of dinosaurs is represented by the biggest and most specialized version so uh, for example in dinosaur provincial park we have um, animals like gorgosaurus or dyspletosaurus and they have very close relatives at the end, like Tyrannosaurus rex. Tyrannosaurus rex is much more specialized than either Gorgosaurus or Dyspletosaurus. and it's much bigger too. So at the end of the Cretaceous, you have the largest uh, representatives of most families of dinosaurs, and the most specialized. And the problem with that is that by being large, you set yourself up for uh, catastrophe, because if something goes wrong, you can't recover as easily as small animals can. And uh, the easiest way to think of this is think in terms of uh, mice and birds and so on that that are very small, which have many, many children in a a single year. And uh, because the turnover rate is so high for those animals, they can adapt pretty readily to changes in the environment but really big animals, um, they're replaced only by two uh, juveniles in their lifetime. And so uh, when you have a long lifetime, uh, 25, 30 years, and you're a big animal, uh, you don't adapt very fast. You don't have changes. Uh, The large life uh, body style, uh, that kind of approach, is only going to be something that works if you have a long term of climatic stability and uh, as the uh, climate became unstable and became more continental, uh, the diversity was reduced and then when the asteroid did hit 65 million years ago roughly, um, then the dinosaurs just couldn't recover from that, whereas small animals like mice and birds, they could. Mm -hmm.
0: So I do wonder then if, given all of those developments over that 10 million year span, if that asteroid had come 10 million years sooner and arrived 76 million years ago instead of 66, would the outcome have been different?
4: I think it would have been very different. In fact, I kind of suspect that dinosaurs would have survived uh, a lot longer, at least, because um, there was much greater diversity, uh, two or three times the number of animals And many of those dinosaurs actually were small. They weren't big, giant forms like Tyrannosaurus rex. And consequently, uh, they were more adaptable. And uh, because there were more different types around, they had more chances of surviving for that reason as well.
0: Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You
1: can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.